iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Game Football Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and today I'm joined by former Kent, Middlesex and England cricketer Ed Smith. Now as well as a long playing career in the game, Ed was also chief selector for England cricket between 2018 and 2021. But today Ed joins us to talk about football and his new book, Making Decisions, Putting the Human Back in the Machine. Ed, welcome to the Game Podcast. Now the book is a, it's a really fascinating read. I really, really enjoyed it and it, it's really interesting to me you know, across the world, not just in sport, data is becoming such a big part of our lives, isn't it? I'm a, I'm a digital journalist. I constantly told, look at the data and I'm told and I'm thinking, well, yeah, but no, this is actually a really interesting article. And so that is the the genesis of the book, isn't it? In a way, the kind of If the conflict. data was better, they'd capture how long you stayed. And of course they do now. Exactly. Time. Absolutely. How long did you stay with the article? Not just how many eyeballs. Absolutely. Which... Well, that's another great example. But your book talks about that uh, clash, if you like, within yes. the world of sport. But you you make the case that we we mere humans we still have a role to play that's right isn't it yeah and that's a very very good framing of it the, the the book starts with a question that a friend of mine an investor asked me he said how much longer Ed, till the selection of England cricket teams is done entirely by an algorithm mm. and I didn't give a very good answer <laughs> at dinner and I sort of thought about it a bit more and it became a book the answer is I think human judgment has a long way still to go and I explore some of the ways in which I believe that to be the case obviously I came back into um, the sharp end of sport was selected 2018. It's a very exciting moment in the history of sports on the cusp of a data revolution. Mm. The amount and the richness of data is getting greater all the time. And we're able to capture information, analyze it far more quickly and efficiently than was the case when I was a player. However, it is not the case that that absolves decision makers from the need to weigh, reconcile, evaluate evidence, and then actually, crucially, to make a judgment about it. Which evidence is most relevant? How do you go about that process? There's no escape from judgment. I never once gave a press conference to a selector and said, the data says. Mm. I never said, the scouts say. Yeah. It's, that's my job. Yeah. <laughs> and it was my job to, to, wait, to make those decisions. I think the human dimension is also interesting, not just in terms of, if you like, science versus judgment or intuition, but also in terms of the whole question of teams. You know, most sports revolve around teams, football, obviously, cricket. Um, and also, so do most professions revolve around teams. Building better teams is a significant part of what every leader is trying to do across industries. And so in cricket, you've got this tension, which is also there in football, which is how do you weigh individual stats and evidence versus how it fits into the team? And when I think about teams I admire the most across the sporting spectrum, they are probably better at answering two questions. Not only is X better than Y 
in terms of our recruitment strategy, but also what are the team's needs? And that's a question that's often left out mm. <laughs> fatally, not only in punditry, but also in selection meetings or decision-making meetings. I always think a bad decision-making meeting begins with, I like X, not Y. Another mm. person says, I like Y, not X. A good one starts with, what have we got coming up? What are our strategic priorities? What are our team's needs in these circumstances against these oppositions? And these opposition, and then the answer sort of drops out of that question. Yeah, and particularly those kind of planning can't always happen in football, particularly you know this world where we crave success instantly. Do you find that both within your time um, as England selector, but also in researching the book, uh, that thirst for instant success? Did that sometimes conflict with the idea of building a bigger a bigger project, if you like, a better strategy? Obviously, you want both. Mm. Uh, I sometimes think there are four possible scenarios, winning now and planning for winning in the future, losing now and planning for winning in the future, winning now but not doing anything for the future, and then not winning now and not winning in the future. And then you obviously... That's the disaster. One is the best, (laughs) two and three you could move between, and four is a disaster. So I think um, there is, although I actually interpreted the, the role of selection maybe a little bit differently... I was very focused on, you know, let's get performance, you know, let's make decisions which will lead the best lead to the best possible performance now and in the future. It can be a bit convenient to always be rebuilding. Mm. One of the things I, I think many people in, in sport and football admired about Sir Alex Ferguson's teams is that he didn't really have rebuilding phases because no. he was always rebuilding. And that question, I think, in a team is how do you refresh a team without it needing to kind of completely fall apart or fade and then you can sort of say well now we're building again well actually is there not a way where you can constantly renew I Mm. think there is Um, and that's a fundamental challenge in selection recruitment and team building full stop yeah you mentioned teams that you've admired are there any particular ones and I mean we're going to come on to football specifics, but across sport, you mentioned Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United. Are there other great teams that you think have done done that well, combined well, all those things? I think there, there have been, and we'll talk about innovation in a moment. Well, I think the time when you sit up and notice teams in other sports, most of all, is when you can really sense they're doing something new and different. Hmm. I think that was true with early Wenger teams. I'm an Arsenal fan, yeah. but but also there was, a, there was a great intellectual energy around those teams. And part of it was actually based on superior recruitment. He had an international global network, fantastic scouting, also interest in data, nutrition, the whole picture which was ahead of his time and I think that was very very interesting I was actually just turning pro when Wenger was beginning his time as Arsenal manager mm. sort of you know 96 97 I played my first professional cricket matches so I watched that career with a lot of interest and then of course you get a very um, recurrent problem for innovators which is that other people um, copy mm. and sometimes improve yeah. on what you're doing which is another uh, another example of that is is the Oakland Athletics where Billy Bean was a pioneering yeah. GM obviously the foundation of the Moneyball story but then other richer teams including you know his his former colleague the Epstein and you know and the Red Sox have more resources to employ those strategies and that's sometimes the case I think in the Premier League right now yeah, I do admire what Brentford have done. Mm. And actually, you know, I have an institute called the Institute of Sports Humanities and several of my students did extended pieces of work on Brentford's recruitment strategy. Really? And it was really interesting for me because they were kind of ahead of, they, they had more detail at that point than I did. Right. Um, I spent a little bit of time with, with Rasmus Ankerson, who obviously was co-director of football at, mm. at, at Brentford and has the brilliant line, 
you got to look for talent that whispers, not talent that shouts. Right. And I think that's a very interesting question in recruitment across sport. And I think when I look at Brentford, you know, they have punched above their weight, no question. Mm. And they've done it through shrewd recruitment and through th- shrewd awareness of what they need to compete mm. rather than making emotional decisions based on let's assign the most expensive player we can. Yeah. Set against that, you, you definitely see sports franchises in football and beyond where you see the pressure impacting on the decision. And, the, you know, often framed as, why wouldn't they spend some money? And then they go and spend some money and it's in the wrong place, yeah. either the wrong player or the wrong role. Yeah. Talking about Brentford then, that, that analogy of the whispering and the shouting, explain to us a little bit more about what you mean there. Is that is the shouting a big name or is it a, it is an instant impact rather than someone of longevity? Or, or someone who who's skills are obvious right so was it Del Bosque who had the great line about Busquets wasn't it if you mm. only watch the game you might miss him yeah. but if you watch him you'll see the the whole game yeah. I think he said it better than that yeah. but that's the thrust of it so sometimes when you watch sport you miss um, a lot of value mm. and the art of selection and recruitment is to understand those players and those aspects of performance which are most easily missed yeah you know, Daryl Morey, who's a pioneering GM in basketball, an issue with the Houston Rockets now with the Philadelphia 76ers, had the great line about the underrated Shane Battier. I call him Lego. Hmm. When he's on the court, all the pieces fit together. Right. Interestingly, the individual stats didn't capture what he was so good at. Hmm. But the teams plus minus went up a lot when he's on the court and Maury's smart enough and data savvy enough to keep asking the question, how do we get five people on the court that adds up to more than the sum of the parts and how do we recruit a roster that enables us to do that more than mm-hmm. our rivals? Yes, that those kinds of ideas were prevalent in my thinking in writing the book and the way mm-hmm. I thought about selection for England. So if you think about if you ask the most unthinking, and there's nothing wrong with being an unthinking fan because some of us watch sport just for the hell of it and the Absolutely, fun of it. Yeah. So it's not all about everything being turned into a highly analytical experience. However, if we ask the most unthinking fan who we'd like to pick, they'd probably say loads of really exciting players that score goals. Yeah. That's what I said when I was 10. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Why can't England just pick them all and yeah, line yeah. them all up and go out there and you know everyone will score? It'd be fantastic. A bit more to it than that. You're mm. probably going to miss the player that provides the structure that enables creative players to thrive. Mm. Uh, and of course, if you're in the business of actually making decisions rather than <laughs> just wanting to see everyone play a thrilling brand of sport, your job is to not miss those players and to make sure they're on the field. Absolutely. And uh, coming briefly back to the point you made about statistics and the basketball example there, do you think, and this is something I feel um, particularly within football, and perhaps it's a social media age thing of our need for instant information and mm. uh, slightly base level information and it's mm. something I talk about with statistics without context mm. so you can easily say oh look at this person's pass completion rate aren't they absolutely but, how, but what type of passes are absolutely. they making is that something that you feel has gone too far in sport i.e. we both in cricket in your time as a selector but also across sport are we losing sight of that context do you think a little oh, bit and that's a really good example and I think that the, the Liverpool head of analysis made exactly that point he said uh, a while ago 
past completion is a very flawed statistic mm. because you can make a lot of very conservative passes and end up with a 90 plus past completion which hasn't actually enhanced your team's position and they looked at goal probability added at Liverpool I think that was the phrase or, right. or, or a version of that phrase where in other words how did the intervention made by the player impact on the likelihood of scoring a goal quite difficult to capture but they felt they'd move significantly in that direction and that makes absolute sense to me you don't want to end up using metrics which are easy to capture and easy to measure but which don't actually reflect real value all the time what you're looking for is is to understand the question that yields an answer that helps you to unlock what makes the team win more yeah that's usually a subtle and complicated question rather than an easy answer hmm. he's better than him because his pass completion rate is higher it's yeah. not like that and so briefly in a broader sense before we drill down into more sp- football specifics what would you is it a 50-50 split the perfect balance between the kind of the data and the human side I know I'm putting you on the spot no here, it, I, but is it, is it, I'm going to stop you because I don't think that's a seeing it as a mixture, which mm. you're basically saying, how much of one element, yeah. how much of the other, is it 50-50? I think that misses the fact that it's a compound effect. Right. So it becomes something wholly new and better if you can capture that balance and resolve it in a, in a superior way. Let me give you an example. And I'm going to talk a tiny bit about cricket. England won the World Cup in 2019 and the super over was bowled by Joffre Archer. Mm. So the final was decided by England's fast bowler, Joffre Archer. Now, it turned out that in the run-up to the World Cup, that was a decision that fell with us, the selectors. And at the very last minute, we added Joffre Archer to the squad. Quite a lot of noise around that. Is it too yeah. late? Blah, blah, blah. And unusually for the selection data team, we actually slipped into prediction mode at that meeting and said, not only do we believe Joffre Archer should be in the squad, we believe he should be in the final 11. Not only do we believe he should be in the final 11, we believe he'll be England's best seam bowler. He ended up getting 20 wickets more than any England bowler in the history of the World Cup and he decided the tournament with a super over but if this sounds like a very scientific analysis <laughs> stop right there all of that falls pretty flat without the human being Owen Morgan captain of England the super over there's 1.6 billion people watching on TV and there's a guy who's played a handful of games for England on top of his mark about to determine the World Cup final and Owen's available he's open He's relaxed, he transmits confidence hmm. and is a masterclass in how to lead in an extremely high-stress situation. No surprise to those who've seen Owen as a leader. So the point is that there are scientific strands to that decision, but they wouldn't have ended up being down. very <laughs> useful without the human dimension too. Uh, and that runs through the whole book. Hmm. You, you've not only got to try and work out where you stand on a continuum between certainty and if you like best guess because there's clearly is the the more and the better data you have you move you push out towards certainty the less good the data the smaller the margin between players you're moving much more towards a best guess it helps to know roughly where you stand but then also where do the scientific strands interact with the human dimension because we're talking about teams we're talking about intangible aspects not just team spirit which is often a pretty flawed concept but actually how the parts interact and that question of interaction which I sort of sounds a little bit pretentious to say thinking in compounds rather than mixtures Mm. but sometimes when you add two things together you don't just get the sum you get something completely different and better
and well, you you lead me perfectly onto my next question, which is about a section of the book which talks about uh, tactical innovations in football, and you highlight Spain's success um, during tw- two thousand and eight to two thousand and twelve with their success at international level, largely playing without a striker. Um, obviously, well documented within football in recent years. But what have you made in terms of? Manchester City of late, Liverpool, both with Darlene Nunez and Erling Haaland, you know, they moved back towards a traditional, old-fashioned, as some people have said it, central striker. Because that, that, particularly with Manchester City, I feel, ticks one of your boxes earlier about refreshing and succeeding at the same time. They won the title last season and they've moved forward and they've refreshed and changed. Raheem Sterling has left, Erling Haaland has come in. You know, is that the kind of thing that you're... Because in the book, you also highlight the Spain um, tactical movers seen at the time as, what are they doing? What on earth are they well, doing? Which uh, you have a lot of this uh, summer, don't right. you? So there's a couple of things. First of all, they did win the Premier League without Haaland last year. Yeah, it's absolutely. like a different structure. So yeah. secondly, you know, that, that passage of the book, that came to me when I was flying out to a cricket tour and I read Zonal Marking yeah. by Michael Cox, mm. which I think is a brilliant book, a very interesting mind grappling with data and yeah. tactics in sport. One of the things that struck me, because I'm obviously in the middle of making decisions, some of which are controversial in a different sport, when I'm reading Cox, the, the thread of the book that I found most interesting is that every tactical innovation is extremely unpopular yeah. until it succeeds. Yeah. So there is innate conservatism in all sports. And of course, you know, pundits tend to talk about what they know and what they what they experienced. And, and this seems to... Um, Cause difficulties in the short term everywhere. It's you know when you know when when Spain moved towards you know whether it's the appropriate phrase tick attack or fast mm. passing or lots of midfield players who aren't particularly physically physically dominant but are highly skilled. But that 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 movement, if mm. you like, initially people say this is not Spanish, this mm-hmm. is not who we are, this is not our football and culture. And then of course it's basically becomes adopted around the world. It becomes a highly a dominant orthodoxy. The interesting thing, uh, and I, this is where I remember also watching those games, was that right up to the end of that, I think the Spain were the, were the most successful international football team in the history of mm. international football in that period yeah. in terms of winningness, yes. winning loads and loads of games. And they're often playing very similar players together, Iniesta and Xavi, for example. How often do we hear you can't play X and Y in the same team? Well, you can if, if you make it work. Right up to that, the third of those triumphs, you were still hearing quite a lot of people say, Imagine how good Spain could be if they yeah. picked a big, strong lad to bang the goals in up front. Yeah. And you're like, well, 4-1, was it in the final against yeah. Italy? They're looking pretty good to me. Mm. So you, that conservative element, which exists in all sports, and of course, conservatives aren't always wrong. There are, there are truths which tradition supplies. So it's not saying that you should throw conservatives. There's always a tension between innovation and, if you like, collective wisdom. But they're always ready to come back with the last laugh. Yeah. I would say actually that, you know, Spain and of course, you know, embodied as well by Barcelona in that era, they they did seem to me to be radicalizing an innovative approach to football. Yeah. Yes, in the case of Barcelona benefiting from the world's best player, but not only that. Yeah. It seemed different and it seemed better. Yeah. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, you've talked there a lot about innovation and that leads on to the next section of the book, which I found particularly fascinating, both as a sports fan, but also as a journalist, because I've definitely been guilty of something that you highlight, which is pairing innovation and ingenuity together are similar things. Now, you you say in the book that Johan Cruyff was an innovator and Jose Mourinho was ingenious. Can you explain to listeners what you mean by that? Well, you've described it perfectly. And actually, I found myself making that mistake too blurring those two mm. qualities because I think we all do because we like the idea of the smart person who's got yeah. the answers yeah. but there are many different types of intelligence and many different types of solution that actually came to me and it surprised me when I was writing it because I was trying to work out why so many brilliant tacticians who often you know end up talking about sport in the media mm. are often so anti-innovation I was really struggling I was why why do people who were brilliant captains say oh they're too clever by half why are they doing this mm. they shouldn't be doing that and then I realised if you think of it as a card game an ingenious decision maker has the same cards as everyone else but plays them better mm. an innovator it's a whole new game and innovators from the Latin made new something right. new and actually I think there's almost that sense of disappointment from the ingenious mind of saying, well, what do they need to do something new? You should be as clever as me and you just play the same cards in a better order and you win the hand. But actually, personally, although I have a great deal of respect for the Mourinho-type mind, the person who can change at half-time and have that in-the-moment intelligence to work out what needs to be done immediately, I suppose I'm more drawn and interested um, by people... Who, who radically changed the game by thinking about it in a new way. We've discussed in baseball, obviously, um, Oakland Athletics did that through recruitment. Houston Rockets did that in basketball with shooting for three. Mm. It's a fundamental question. The question doesn't get any fun, more fundamental than this. Why are people shooting for two when the benefit is shooting for three? Because they're not prepared to accept the negative metric. You're going to miss more when you shoot for three. But Daryl Morey points out, yeah... But in the trade-off, if you get the right recruitment strategy and the right tactical strategy, you win more. And actually, everyone ends up shooting for three more mm. in basketball. So the whole game changes. In the same way, you know, I think Simon Cooper, you know, described you know Cruyff as as the greatest genius because he both does it and then explains it. Mm. Uh, so first as a player and then as a manager. You know, that clearly is a, a revolution in football. And then, of course, it's radicalised and reinterpreted and Guadalajara's great metaphor about he didn't build the cathedral, but he but he refurbished and repainted mm. it and that he was building on Cruyff's ideas, which, of course, brings together that sense of evolution and tradition, which is, which is very powerful. But 
in sport, we often hear from ingenious people. We often hear from them and they they think that innovators are overcomplicating things. Right. And of course, not all innovation works. Yeah. Many innovative people yeah, try one notch too far or any, you know, in any set of good ideas, it's any set of, in any set of new ideas, uh, a proportion of them aren't going to work. But sports are its most thrilling, I think, when, I, when it's a lab in which ideas are being tested. And of course, the great thing about sport and what makes it so exciting it gives you the feedback, mm. the wins and losses. Gone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you said you leaned slightly more towards the innovators, and you mentioned Arsene Wenger. I presume he's one of the one yes. that sticks in your mind most. Any other football coaches? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I suppose rather, I think there are clubs which have innovative approaches, yep. and we've discussed Brentford. I think early Wenger is a, it was also a good example of innovation mm. because you could what was really interesting about that was that the blend of a very strong tradition, and I'm sure this has been put very well by people who lived it mm. and inheriting and building on existing strengths yeah. defensively culturally a strong sense of club identity but then also blending very new things to do with player recruitment global a global vision rather than just a kind of english vision so he was england english football's first great globalist i think which then of course becomes the norm but back then it was very exciting and very new yeah. Um, you also mentioned in the book, and this is perhaps quite interesting in t- coming back to cricket, is players that become either captains or coaches who perhaps aren't the superstars, if Very you like. Yeah. Um, and we see that quite a lot, increasingly so, I think, in football. You know, Julian Nagelsmann by Munich was barely a player of any note whatsoever. And Graham Potter, of course, yes. just got the Chelsea job, played in the lower leagues of England. Jurgen Klopp didn't have a Was particularly not a remarkable player, glittering yeah. career. I, what is it, you think? Is, is there anything particularly well, about, about not being a star that then helps you perhaps be a, a thinker, a coach? Very, it's a very interesting question. I think a couple of things. I, I think football is ahead of cricket on that. Right. I think the tradition of someone who's an expert manager who wasn't a great player is longer established. I think we're probably getting there slowly in cricket. But, you know, if you look at the knee-jerk reaction is normally, can't we just have a really famous player as selector, a really famous player as captain, a really famous player as coach, and a really famous player as CEO, and then everything will be great. Well, it's not really <laughs> no, like that, actually. True. And um, but, but in the case of your question asks very centrally is there something useful about not being a great player I think there can be obviously Cruyff was a great player Guardiola was a hell of a player so it doesn't always work I think being on the outside intellectually sharpens people's attention and their interest Rasmus Ankerson also said a, a brilliant line that good ideas often come from just below the top level mm. people's appetite for risk is greater when they're not in possession if you're the very best and you have the most resources normally just carrying on as you are is a very tempting option yeah. same is true I think for thinkers if there's a marketplace for you to say predictable and normal things because you're a great player everyone goes well you're a great player well done here you are and you say something very predictable that's what people do mm. the interesting thing is when people are trying to actually break into the top using better thinking and I think there's an incentive issue there that players who who tasted enough to know what it's like inside but want to leave their mark and they want to use their mind to grapple with better solutions 
that obviously can help in terms of mm. a managerial career. And yes, it, it, you know, if we look at the landscape in terms of managers today, a lot of them were played, but maybe weren't defined by it. The other thing is actually, again, another, another line from Wenger. Wenger did a great interview with Le Keep once, which was fascinating. And he said, every time I'm introduced to someone as an ex-Arsenal player, it's a small tragedy. And what he was saying was they're still defined by themselves as players, right. but they're no longer players. Right. And can people actually force themselves to go again? Hmm. Yeah, that's actually something I used to say to myself when I was selector. Not about how old someone is. It's about whether they think their best days are ahead of them, yeah. either inside the game or in a different role. Yeah. And actually, I think those managers you cite there, the ones who, who played a bit but weren't completely satisfied, they forced themselves to go again. Hmm. It's not a bad way to live more generally. Of course, there are a very small number of people who are just so driven that yeah. however much they succeed, it's never enough. Absolutely. But it's very interesting that you mentioned, which, Ed, you must get you back on the game podcast. You're teeing me up for my questions absolutely <laughs> beautifully here. You say, you say about that kind of level just below the very top, and that yeah. kind of leads me nicely on to ask about Gareth Southgate. Yes. England manager, of course. And the fascinating thing to me, speaking to someone from the world of cricket, who's known both the playing side, international level, and um, the kind of coaching structures, is you know Gareth Southgate essentially embodies all the roles that lots of people fill in England cricket. Yeah. You know, at cricket level, you have captain, coach, selector. They're doing different things. They're offering different inputs. They're taking different responsibilities. As you said earlier with the Owen Morgan example, you'd help promote Joffre Archer into the team but without Morgan those the, the the winning scenario doesn't happen yes in football you have Harry Kane wearing the armband but it's it's more sure. of a figurehead role Southgate is essentially embodying all those facets sure. you know I wanted to ask you both what you thought about those two distinctions but also what you thought about Southgate as a, well, as a character again very interesting so what, one of the things I, I I make one of the points I make in the book is I'm agnostic about structure there's lots of different ways of doing it different sports have different traditions football has a longer tradition of power being predominantly vested in the manager. Go back 100 years. You know, there have been many managers who've done an awful lot uh, of decision-making within the club. Um, cricket is different, where actually the selector role is older than the coach role. The first England coach was 1987, Mickey Stewart, mm. quite late in the day. Yeah. But there was a chairman of selectors you know, 140 years ago. So the captain and the selector came first and the coach actually came in from other sports. And of course, you should have a coach. Of course you should in cricket and we always will from now on. There's another difference, which is there are three England cricket teams, not one. So if you're interested in analogy, you should also be interested in when analogy doesn't hold. Mm. England cricket's not England football. Yeah. There's one England football team and it doesn't play all that much in comparison with other yes. sports teams. There are three England cricket teams, test, five days, one day internationals, one day T20, half a day. And they play nearly all the time. Mm. And balancing who's where when is a fundamental challenge for England cricket and it isn't quite the same the England football team. Where I think... There has been some overlap, and I think there's been um, collaboration between England cricket and England football. Is I think Gareth Southgate helped to create, as part of the, the FA system before he became England manager itself, you know, a strong sense of identity, belonging, and culture, which I think he's then continued to develop and nurture in the top job, if you like. Mm. So I think there was a strong sense has been a strong sense with in his tenure of a joined up 
yeah. you know, approached by the FA and throughout their pathway. And I think England cricket is the same. There, mm. some some very good joined up thinking there. One of the things I think he did very well in 2018 was he turned the relative lack of massive stars into a strength mm. and an identity. And he realised that having lots of good players but relatively few global brands was actually one of the things that made the team attractive and mm. engaging and could be turned to his advantage and the team's advantage. So I think there has been an ingenuity there. And I think his teams have been very attractive. Mm. Um, obviously, there are always bumps in the road and frustrations and anxieties. Attractiveness is quite a subtle concept and more fundamental than people in sport sometimes acknowledge. It doesn't just mean playing attractive football. I think it also means the ability to connect and for people to want you to do well as a team. Um, it's very powerful. Yeah. Sport is about belonging, about identity, about entertainment, about people giving up their time to share a journey. And they're much more likely to do that with warmth and an open heart if they feel that the people deserve it and enjoy it. Yeah. And I think Southgate's England have been a very attractive team in lots of senses. Did you see parallels in that kind of belonging and the kind of national pride, if you like, in terms of the cricket teams during your time and yes. what Southgate did? Because it felt like the World Cup win and those kind of runs in tournaments that the football team had, there were parallels in terms of the players being seen as very likeable and very accessible. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I remember watching 2008 football tournament with the England cricket team and mm. then of course it was England cricket's turn in 2019 yeah. and rugby as well yeah. that winter too. So lots of, you know, late stages tournament play, yeah. some of which, you know, England football obviously went to the final more recently. England cricket went to a final and won it. England rugby went to a final and lost out to a good team, South Africa. Yes, I, and actually I'd say that one day team, Owen Morgan's team, was also a very attractive team played with very expressive um, very competitive but also fair minded mm. and I think interestingly there's always edge in elite sport but yeah. I think a, the opposition respected that England team yeah. and actually felt they were part of some great games um, yeah. uh, and that's not to be underestimated winning takes many forms we're all in the business in sport you want to win desperately yeah uh, I was probably sometimes too single-minded about that. But with a bit of perspective, you realise that actually the way the teams play is at least as important. I think we've seen that this summer. I'm not involved now, but just as someone who loves cricket, I've thrilled to Brendan McCullum, Rob Key, mm. Ben Stokes as England. Yeah. They have put a smile on our face. Yeah. And everyone wants to play in that team. Everyone wants to watch that team. They certainly do. They certainly do. Well, one team that people are becoming more and more attuned to is your beloved Arsenal, of course. And yes. couldn't couldn't let you leave without asking yeah. you about them. Before asking you about you know, Arsenal as a fan, I wanted to ask about Mikel Arteta because yes. some of the things we've touched on in terms of long-term building, mm. people who think about the game differently or perhaps just adapt what is there mm. already. You know, How do you view him in light of the things that we've talked about as a coach and as a thinker? Well... Uh I watched a lot of Arteta as a player yeah. and I was very interested in him. I thought he was an outstanding decision maker. My mm. book's called Making Decisions. He was a very good decision maker. And actually, um, you were very conscious in watching Mikel Arteta play of his intelligence. I would say he was one of the most intelligent players I've watched a lot of. 
And I also sensed at times he was a second manager. Mm. And I sometimes remember, you know, conversation with the man, not just as a club captain, but it went a bit further than that. He was an extra shaping mind on the field. So you knew that was there. And then, of course, he went to Man City as assistant manager and formed that alliance with Pep Guardiola and then has come to Arsenal and I think is doing a very good job. I'll also say one thing about Arsenal, which is easy to miss. As I'm 45 now and I've had different positions in sport, inside and outside the high performance part, I've come over time to see the game more through the lens of, if you like, the top and how that filters down. And when I say the top, what do I mean? I suppose I mean the decision makers at CEO and board level and how that mm. then supports and nurtures um, the decision makers closer to the pitch. I think sustained success is very difficult without there being clear strategy right at the top. And I think Vinay Vinkatesham has done a very good job at Arsenal, appointing and then supporting and sticking with Mikel Arteta. And also just getting the club lined up right in a way that sustainable success becomes more likely. There's never a guarantee, but equally it hasn't been a surprise. I think most people who follow the club could sense that it was moving in a good direction and you know, hopefully it will continue like it has done. I started this season with some with some dazzling play on the field, mm. but I think it's very hard to have sustained success without that clarity and that direction from the top. Yeah, I mean Arteta for me last season was such a it was such a wonderful story because he'd gone through quite a long period of of being under pressure. Um, we come back to that point at the start of the show about football's need for instant success, but you did feel like the Arsenal were trying to put that in place in terms of yes. the long term structure. Perhaps speaking now as a fan, finally, what do you think about into this season? They've had a great start. I feel like they've recruited very much in the mould of what we were talking about. Clever recruitment. Alexander Zinchenko has got to be one of the smartest signings for me in the Premier League this season. But perhaps putting your fan hat on, how how, how do you view this season? Um, I see top four, actually. Um, yeah. My friends at the club probably won't help me. Won't <laughs> thank me for saying that, but I, but I do. Yeah. And actually, much more than that, because actually... Prediction is is probably less interesting than than general direction of travel because you can always be wrong about a particular season. But I think generally, I think the club is moving in a very good direction. And exactly as you say, and you see signals and signs of that externally through recruitment strategy, through the clarity of their approach. Um, and then you can also sense, you know, inside the stadium, people kind of know that as well. Mm. And it becomes a virtuous circle where, you know, fans believe... Yeah. that emboldens decision makers that, that, that their message is getting across that they're getting the right way yeah. and, and so- I, I would say that it's been a lot of hard work and I think the the upside is coming down the road excellent well we have a little um, trick at the end of the season we always play back our predictions so we'll factor yours in and we'll give you a little shout out when Arsenal have got top four we'll make sure we we'll give you an extra little plug um, it was absolutely, absolutely fascinating chat Ed thank you very much it's a fascinating book Making Decisions is out now Ed Smith thank you for joining us on the game Real pleasure. Thank you. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, 
rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.